Reading is taken from Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the, you are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lehawai. It is still there, between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in a series in uh, the, the book of Genesis looking at Abram's life. And this morning I want to ask you, what does success look like? What does success look like? How do you know when you have really made it? What do you need to do, or to have, or to be, to be somebody? I've heard that success for men in our city, at least, is defined as having a car, a flat, and a wife. Is that accurate? According to societal expectations, if you have those things, well, you have, in some sense, you've made it. And presumably, the, the flashier the car, the, the more spacious the flat, and uh, the more desirable the spouse, the more of a somebody you are. I guess it applies to women in, in their own way. But maybe that's not your definition. Maybe in your circles, your value has more to do with your career. Rising to the top of your field and getting the respect of your peers. Or maybe for you, success looks like, well, your appearance. 
As long as you look good and you stay fit, others are going to respect you. Or maybe it's the achievements of your children that really bring honor. And so you push your kids to win at the starting line so that they can be the best and get into the best universities and become doctors. And if they do that, well, then no one can deny that you've been a good parent. But the flip side of those uh, cultural definitions of success is that if, if you don't achieve them, well, you're nobody. You're nothing. If you don't get into the best uni, if you get stuck in a low-level job, if you're poor, if your kids struggle, then you aren't honored, you're overlooked. Perhaps you feel humiliated that others are looking down on you. Perhaps you begin to despise yourself because you can't meet the standard. And that's what it meant in the ancient Near East for a woman to be barren. The picture of success, of blessing for a woman in that time was a household full of children. It's what gave her social standing in that culture. It's what proved her worth and gave her life meaning. But women who couldn't produce children for their husbands were looked down on by other people, considered cursed even. In that culture, barrenness meant that you were seen as a failure as a woman. And when we understand that, we begin to see, to understand some of the emotional pressures at work in this story, some of the cultural dynamics at play in Genesis 16, because we read in verse 1, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So the reality of what Sarai's barrenness meant in that culture, it sets up the events of this chapter in all their ugliness, in all their evil, and it is evil, what we read here. But the question that Sarai starts off trying to answer is how am I going to escape my shame? How can I, I, I get away from the despising, the, the looking down? Now, if you've been here in recent weeks, you'll remember that God has made an incredibly gracious promise to Abram. He's promised that he'll give him descendants more numerous than the stars. He's promised that uh, he will give him a vast and plentiful land to live in and that he will bless him so abundantly that every nation, every people on earth will be blessed through him. And God sealed that promise with a, a covenant to Abraham in chapter 15 last week. But according to verse 3, Sarah and Abraham have now been living in the land for 10 years. And they've been waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And nothing has happened. Oh, sure, they, they've gotten a little bit wealthier maybe, but no descendants. The most basic first step for the blessing that God has promised them hasn't happened yet. So Sarah comes up with a plan. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. 
Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, as strange as that sort of scheme might sound to us, in that culture at that time, evidently that was a, a relatively normal procedure. It's how you dealt with barrenness if you were a wealthy woman. Several legal codes that have been discovered in that region from the, the second millennium BC through to the first millennium uh, between Babylon and Egypt uh, in various places, they reference this practice of uh, a female slave being used to produce a surrogate child for her mistress. And the mistress would then be able to raise this child as her own. It'd be considered her heir. It was culturally accepted. And in a sense, maybe Sarah could have thought, well, this is how God will provide what he's promised. He had said Abram would produce an heir from his own body, but he hadn't mentioned Sarah up to this point. So maybe, perhaps in her desperation, she thought this could be the way that God's promise would be fulfilled. And yet, and yet I think we have a hint in verse 2 that that's not her motive. She says, the Lord has kept me from having children. See, Sarah is a religious person. She knows that the Lord has authority over all of this. She knows that he can prevent or allow children. And she knows that he's promised a child. And so rather than trusting the Lord to do what he said he'll do, she sees him as the obstacle. He's preventing what I want. And so she's saying, in effect, since he's keeping me from it, I'll get what I want by other means, myself. And that sinful motive is confirmed in the way that suddenly everyone around her becomes something to be used to get what she wants. The narrator names Hagar constantly in this story. But neither Sarah nor Abram speak Hagar's name in any of these verses. She's your slave, she's my slave, she's a slave. She's seen as property, not as a person. Likewise, Abram, he's not really asked his opinion. He's just told, go into Hagar so that Sarai can build her family. Maybe I can build a family for myself through her. And very quickly, it seems, everyone around becomes a, a tool to be used to get what Sarah wants. Do you see what's happened here is that Sarah's put her desire for a child, that thing that will give her the social standing that she so desires, the thing that will make her a somebody and that will take the shame away from her, she's put that desire above God. She's put it in the place of God. She's begun to look for an idol for her salvation, and she's willing to bypass God and to use everyone around to get it. Everyone else around is used to worship the idol. Now, in this day and age, in many of the cultures that people here this morning are from, we don't think about... Um, infertility like this. 
we don't think that it carries the, the same stigma in many cultures today. In some it still does, and some of you will be from a culture where it does. But I want to say that it's unequivocally a good thing if we don't think of infertility and, and um, that issue as a, a stigma carrying a shameful thing. I don't want anything I say this morning to suggest that we should go back to thinking about that in the way that the ancient Near East did. But I don't want us to think too highly of our own culture. Because even if our culture doesn't determine a woman's worth by her children, by her fertility, it does make harsh value judgments, especially about women. You know, plenty of women are made to feel if you aren't successful in your career, if you aren't attractive and fit, if you don't have the most passionate love life, and if you don't marry well, if your children aren't Rhodes scholars, if you're not a popular socialite, well, you're barren. You're nobody. The focus might have changed, but the, uh, the oppressive judgments remain, and the shame of not living up to the expectation can be just the same. And to combat that shame, we come up with all sorts of schemes. You know, we could try to overrule God's authority. We can use others like our property to cover our own inadequacy. Consider how many parents put massive pressure on their children to succeed so that they can feel validation. A friend was recently describing how when many of her peers had children, they, they um, became stay-at-home mothers and suddenly everything in life was oriented around the education of these children. It was all that she could think about. It was all that she could talk about. It's all that the, the family's resources went into, private schools and tutors. And every day, it was a constant push on the lives of the children to do their homework, to do the extracurricular activities that will make them suitable. And the children are crushed by it. It's obvious to an outsider. But why do they do it? because I've given up everything else in my life for this child. And, and if this child doesn't succeed, well, I've wasted my life. Everyone will think I'm nothing. Everyone will look down on me. What does she do with her life? Look at where her children ended up. And so the pressure destroys everyone. But the story gets uglier because I think that we're meant to see that the sinfulness of Sarai's heart is matched by the sinfulness of Abram's. If Sarai's question is, how do I escape my shame? Abram's question is, how do I secure my blessing? How do I secure my blessing? And that's confirmed by how verse 3 is written. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. The key words here are identical to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The woman took it, 
and gave it to her man. Wife for woman, and uh, the, the word for wife and woman is the same. The word for she and it can be the same. The word for man and husband is the same. The author of Genesis, he's deliberately echoing the story of the fall, just as Eve believed that God was keeping her from becoming like God by refusing to allow her to eat the fruit. Sarah believed that the Lord was keeping her from the child that she so desperately wanted, from the salvation that she sought. And in her heart, God had become this cruel withholder rather than this gracious provider. And so she took it and she gave it to her husband. And just like Adam passively accepted the fruit, so he slept with Hagar and she conceived. Abram, he, he recently, you remember last week, he received direct revelation from God who saw God make a covenant with him. He very quickly joins in with the selfish scheme. And the question is why? He's 85 years old at this, at this time. I think there's more than sexual opportunism here. I don't think it's really about that. I think Abram sees an opportunity to secure the blessing for himself. You know, Paul, as he's looking back on this story from Galatians 4, he says that the two women represent two ways to God's blessing. Abram knew he could secure a son by Hagar in the natural way, according to his flesh. Through his own works, in his own power, he can get the blessing. But for Abram to have a son through Sarai, well, that could only be the result of a divine promise, says Paul. The only way he could secure a son through Sarai would be to receive it by divine intervention. That would require faith, and so he had a choice. Achieve or receive? Faith or works? And Abram trusted himself more than he trusted God. More than he trusted God's promise. And, you know, it blew up everyone's life. His own, his wife, Hagar, Ishmael eventually. It blew up everyone's lives. It always blows up everyone's lives when we try to secure the blessing for ourselves. A couple years ago, the pop singer uh, Adele, she divorced her husband and the, the father of her son. And she told an interviewer that the only explanation she could give for that was that she did it to pursue her own happiness. But she said that her eight-year-old son, Angelo, he had a lot of questions about their divorce. I quote, really good questions, really innocent questions that I just don't have an answer for. Like, why can't you still live together, Adele said. I just felt like I wanted to explain to him through this record, when he's in his 20s or his 30s, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. It made him really unhappy. 
Her story is not unique. When we desperately try to secure our own blessings for ourselves, when we try to secure our own happiness, our own reward apart from the Lord, we end up blowing up not only our own lives, but the lives of the people around us. Just like Abram. You see, the, the, the offspring of Hagar, even if it was a culturally accepted thing to do, is never called Sarai's child. Sarai never is seen as the mother. Hagar is, and Hagar knew it. The author of Genesis puts it that way. Sarai knew it because when she knew that she was pregnant, that's when Hagar knew that she was pregnant, verse 4, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows that she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Just like in Genesis 3, the, the result of trusting themselves over God is immediately its shame, its blame, its division. The English translations actually smooth this out a little bit. They make it easier to take, but the Hebrew of verse 5 is brutal. You can see the tearful rage that she's in. She says, I am violated by you. I put my slave into your lap. And now I'm as nothing in her eyes. And when her faithless plan worked, it's as though suddenly the horror of what she did to achieve her own ends has crashed down on her. Hagar the slave now looks down on her. And how could she not in that culture? She now has the child. Sarah is still barren. Abram, her husband, has now got this intimate connection with the slave. Sarah's gotten what she wanted by her own power, and she is crushed by it. And Abram's response is a complete abdication of responsibility. He says, verse 6, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The word mistreated, it, it's the same word used to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were telling them to make more bricks with less straw. It at least means that she utterly humiliated her. It probably means that she beat her, her pregnant slave. And Abram provides no defense, no protection. Therefore, Hagar fled in fear of her life. So this is a dark situation. You have women oppressed by cultural expectations. You have a slave humiliated and treated like livestock. You have a woman who violently lashes out at someone more vulnerable and a man who's cruelly indifferent to the mother of his child. And there's no one to stop it. No one to appeal to. 
Now, if you've ever been told that the Bible is a story of heroes that have faith that, and lives that we're meant to emulate, you must see that that is false here. So far, we have a victim, Hagar. We have perpetrators, Sarah and Abraham, but we don't have any heroes in this story because the Bible is not full of heroes. It's full of deeply flawed men and women who do truly terrible things, but here's the thing, they're not the main character. The main character of the Bible is the Lord himself in every single story. He's the one who's constantly intervening. He's constantly redeeming. He's constantly delivering his people, even in the darkest circumstances, uh, even here in the second half of this chapter. That's what we find. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Based on her location, Hagar is likely on her way back to Egypt, where she's from. Pregnant and alone, she might well be attacked on the way. She might well die anyway in that state. But it's better than dying to, at Sarah's hand. A and so she's running away, and the angel of the Lord his word to her is surprising. What does he tell her to do? He says, go back. Go back to your mistress. Submit to her. He tells her, submit to the humiliation. Submit to the beatings, maybe. Now, why would he say that? Why would he send this woman back into danger? She would have to be foolish. She'd have to be self-hating to go back there, wouldn't she? Or maybe, maybe she'd have to have a promise. The angel said, I will increase your descendants so, so much that they'll be too numerous to count. And so in a culture where children are the sign of a woman's standing in society. God is saying, Hagar, you've hit the jackpot in this. And I'm going to make sure of it. This promise that she's going to be made a great nation and be blessed beyond measure, if she could trust it, if she could endure the, the suffering, the Lord would protect her and her child, and there'd be glory on the other end. Now, that's a big promise. It's something that she would be willing to go back for if she could only believe it. But who is making the promise? It doesn't seem like anybody special at first because when he asks her, where are you going? She responds to him just like she would any other human, any other man. So if he's an angel, he's not one of these winged, uh, multiple eyes, sort of flaming angels. He's just outwardly uh, a human. But he speaks like he's more than an angel. He looks like less of an angel. He speaks like more than an angel. He says, I will increase your descendants. I will do it. 
Every angel is always talking about what God will do and making uh, statements about what the Lord can do, but this angel says, I'm going to do it. Who could it be? Eventually, it dawns on her that she is speaking to the Lord himself. He's appeared to her in the, the form of a man. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord, the only person in Scripture who's ever said to name the Lord. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I've now seen the one who sees me. And that culture at that time, nobody was looking out for Hagar. Abram and Sarah had all the power in the world over her. And they mistreated her, and nobody cared. No police, no court system, no one looking out for her, but God saw her. He sees her. And when he sees, he cares. He it's not just a, a statement about what he sees. I, I mean, he sees everything. But when he says, I see you, it means I care for you. And up to this point in the story, everyone's eyes have indicated something about their disposition and about the social standing of the person they're looking toward. So, you know, in that culture and really in the Middle East today, you, a slave or a subservient person or um, even women to men in some cultures, they don't look each other in the eyes. They, they avert their eyes out of deference to the superior. And that would have been how Sarah was used to uh, Hagar treating her, not looking in Sarah's eyes, yes ma'am, no ma'am. But when she became pregnant, she looked down on Sarah. You can imagine her locking eyes with Sarah. And Sarah knew she was now small in Hagar's eyes. The text says Sarah was small in her eyes, and, and that drove Sarah mad. But here, she sees the one who sees her. There's a parody here. It's not a superior looking down on an inferior. It's not about who's honored and who's shamed. It's about one looking into the eyes of another and knowing that they matter, that they're valued, that they're cared for. Although the Lord deserves all the deference in the world, he doesn't look down on us like a master to a slave. Rather, he comes down to us to meet our gaze. When we turned away from him in our shame, he came and met us in his son. When he was despised and humiliated and beaten, he looked on us, us, with eyes of compassion, despising the shame, enduring the cross, so that we could be called not slaves, but friends of God. And not merely friends, but sons and daughters. God sees you. Do you see the one that sees you? 
God cares for you. He cares for the ones he sees. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that in a dark and uh, many times, in many ways, evil world, where wrongs are constantly going, going on and it seems like nothing is done, that you see, that you care, that you care for the last and the least and the lost, you care for those who know that they can't achieve blessing for themselves. And you will provide blessing to us, to us, to them. Please keep us looking to you. Please keep us from blowing up our own lives in pursuit of the things that we want and, and instead looking to the things that you want for us, that you have for us, the things that you call us to. Lord, help us to trust you and to trust your promise and be willing to go through whatever it takes to be faithful. We need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.